with all not your truth or kindness, Lord. With all not your truth or kindness, Lord. Welcome to The Notice, where together we notice the mercy of God. I'm Susan Hookstra, your host. The Notice Podcast explores our need to be noticed through biblical musings and conversations with special guests, experience relevant topics, and encouragement as we take notice of how the God of mercy satisfies. On this episode of The Notice, have you experienced a traumatic life event which completely changed you? Maybe it was a sudden illness, death, or accident. On today's episode, we're going to talk with pastor and author Anthony Weber. About six years ago, he unexpectedly suffered a heart attack that not only changed his perspective, but helped him realize just how much God takes notice. Anthony Weber is lead pastor and elder at Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. As a teacher, he also taught at Traverse City Christian School, Spring Arbor University, and Northwestern Michigan College. He is married to the lovely Sheila, has three sons, and is on the board of directors of VitaNet, a mission discipleship program based in Costa Rica, and is also the author of Learning to Jump Again, a memoir of grief and hope. Well, we could talk about a lot of things, including our mutual love for the Lord of the Rings, or our opposing college football teams. But today, we're going to focus on a time about six years ago when something unexpected happened in Anthony's life. It's just so great to have you here today. Thanks for letting me be a a part of uh, the notice, Susan. Yeah, I guess, should I call you Pastor Anthony? Just call me Anthony. Yeah, it's all good. Oh, good. That's what I've been doing, so Uh it's all good. But Anthony is actually my pastor, so I'm really excited to have him here and to learn a little bit more about what happened to him six years ago. So tell us a little bit about what was going on in your life prior to your heart attack. What was going on in my life prior to my heart attack is nothing that would make you think that I would have a heart attack. I was doing CrossFit, which the first rule of CrossFit is that you have to tell people that you do CrossFit. It's the opposite of Fight Club. So I'll have to get that out of the way. I was doing CrossFit. And what that meant was I was in really great shape. I was pretty competitive. I had come off of a shoulder surgery, and I had been working out with my son. And we had been doing one of the workouts for what's called the games for CrossFit. And I said to AJ very specifically, I think I'm ready to get competitive again. And not two days later, I had a heart attack while I was sitting at home playing board games with the family. Wow. Well, in the United States, if someone has a heart attack every 40 seconds, this is a stat I figured out. Wow. Every year, about 500,000 people in the United States have a heart attack. And about 600,000 of them are their first heart attack. So you didn't experience any typical symptoms ahead of time that led you to believe something was going to happen? No, and that was part of what made it really surprising. I just wasn't a guy who was at risk in any of the normal factors. Didn't have high cholesterol, didn't have high blood pressure, didn't have a history in my family of heart disease. Like There was no markers that you would look at medically for something like that. So what had happened, I just thought I was having really bad heartburn or something. I had been told that that feels like a heart attack. So I just got up from the board game and I'm pacing around the house. I'm taking Tums 
Um, I'm taking stuff to just try to get rid of the pain and it's not going away. So I actually, after a while, kind of sat down and Googled symptoms of a heart attack because mm-hmm. I'm thinking there's no way, but I might as well check. And even when I Googled it, the only symptom I had that was consistent with what was listed there was that my chest hurt. There was nothing else. So I'm like, okay, that's only one symptom, though. It's, it's a pretty significant one. I'd like this to not hurt so much. But it was when my family observed that my lips were turning blue. They were like, okay, so we need to go in. So my wife, we, our, our boys are there playing, and we, my wife decides to drive me in. We both agreed to that, actually, because we both didn't think this would be a heart attack. Right. So we drive into the hospital, which is probably a 15-minute drive. And as we're going, it's it's hurting a little, probably a little worse as we're going. I mean, it was, it was a significant amount of pain. But I didn't black out. My life didn't flash before me. Uh, you know, none of those things. I'm just mm-hmm. like, we need to get there. And so we get to Munson, and she drops me off at the ER. I walk in to the desk, and I'm like, my chest really hurts. And that's when I discovered that all the doors open magically at the hospital. <laughs> when you say your <laughs> chest you hurts, your right? Chest really hurts. And I think I probably looked worse than I realized. Uh, what, 45 minutes later, I had a stent, and it all happened pretty fast at that point. And wow. then discovered the next day, we're recovering. And I remember when they were putting the stent in, they don't give you drugs that completely knock you out, so you're still a little awake. And I remember hearing the doctor say, oh, you have 100% blockage. And I was aware enough to think, well, that's probably not good, but far enough out of it that I didn't have an emotional investment in that thought. Right. Just like, whoa, that's pretty impressive. So the next day, we're in the hospital room recovering, and the doctor comes in, and he leads with, well, you had a massive heart attack, and my wife and I are both like, what? That, that can't be a massive heart attack. We've seen TV shows. Right. We know what happens when you have a massive heart attack. He said, oh, no, you had 100% blockage of what is commonly called the Widowmaker. Hmm. Um, and so They I, have names for th- heart attacks? That one they do, because it's the okay. big one. There's a reason it has that nickname. Not many people survive it. And yeah, I had a 100% blockage Widowmaker. And I think that's when both of us suddenly realized that was a really big deal. Yeah. And that's probably a lot of what you and I are going to be discussing today is coming to grips with the bigness of that deal. Right. So how did you feel after this all was happening physically? In the moment, I was mostly annoyed that it hurt so much and just wanted it to stop. And then even when they told me what it was, because I didn't like pass out, I never felt the need to say my goodbyes or anything like that. It, was, it felt more just like a really painful annoyance. Like and, heartburn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you would think of heartburn, like this is just going to be an embarrassing story that we went to the ER over this and it was nothing. Turned out it wasn't nothing. So in the days that followed, Susan, the immediate aftermath was, I mean, it just laid me out. I was in the hospital three days. I was in longer than most people are. It was hard to just walk up and down the hallway one time. They had to keep me on morphine for a bit because just the pain, the pain after the heart attack was almost worse than the heart attack. And what I mean by that is when they put the stent in, suddenly my chest hurt worse than my heart attack. And it was because, and I'm not a doctor, so work with me here on the layman's language, like uh, the muscles in my heart that stopped getting blood flow, they like stopped working, so to speak. So when blood flow came back, they in essence cramped. Like I just got a huge Charlie horse in my heart. And that actually lasted for a while. 
How and, long does it have to last before you die, do you know? Um, well, obviously oh. you didn't die. <laughs> but. Longer than that. Yeah. Uh, well, and it turns out I had good secondary blood flow. So my, my body rerouted some blood to the heart, just not all of it, I guess. My heart fully recovered, by the way. So I don't have long-term damage to my heart. But there was something about nice. that that really just kind of landed heavily in my physical body. So longer than normal stay in the hospital. When I got home, it was longer than normal from what I've been reading and talking with other people before I got up and about and was feeling okay. I still remember coming to church three months later and having several people tell me in the same morning, hey, you have the color back in your face. So just to give an idea of the impact that it had. And so those first couple months, like you have lots of reasons to use that as an excuse to be okay with feeling weak and feeling run down and feeling Mm -hmm. tired because something happened. It was probably Susan after, let's say, the first three months where I began to really start to feel the long-term impact of the trauma. And, And that was both physically and emotionally. So emotionally, I had to go get counseling because I, I realized I was living with a lot of fear because I think it would have been easier if I'd have been a guy with a lot of kind of predictable uh, hints that a heart attack was coming right. or if I had a, led a lifestyle that lent itself to a heart attack. Mm-hmm. But here I was, healthy guy, no, well, just out of the blue. Well, let me ask you this. What was the stress level like in your life at that time? <laughs> so let's back up to about, I'm going to say 10 to 12 years before that. Uh, I had like a mental and emotional breakdown because I didn't handle stress well and I overloaded my life. So I had felt like on the other side of that, I had also done counseling for that, done a lot of reading, tried to reorganize my life because it had become unmanageable and that was my fault. Mm-hmm. So I didn't feel like the stress was overwhelming. I think there was stress. And being a pastor carries with it its own kind of stress. But I, I hadn't thought of myself as being overly stressed. But this was now two fairly major events in my life. And the first one was stress-related, so I, I needed to consider the second one was. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. Okay. My uh, need for counseling came from the way in which my world was shrinking. And here's what I mean by that. I began to realize I didn't want to go hiking with my son, my youngest son who loved to hike, because I thought, what if I'm hiking with him and I have another heart attack? And he's right mm-hmm. there while he watches mm-hmm. dad die in the middle of a yeah. hiking trail. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to go to Costa Rica where I was on the board and, and did some teaching, because what if I have a heart attack in the middle of a three and a half hour flight? And then it was, if I'm driving somewhere, I need to know where the hospitals are on the route, because what if I have a heart attack while I'm driving? Just mm-hmm. all the time was, what I if can, I have another yeah. heart attack? So when I was talking with my counselor about that, his words were, oh, your world is shrinking. And I realized, yeah, very much so. I was consciously and constantly aware of how close help was if I needed it. And it was really beginning to limit my ability to function. That was the emotional side I had to address that had a spiritual component to it all. So what about what about Sheila and your kids? How how did they respond to all this? Oh, okay, that's a fascinating question. So, oh, we should have pulled Sheila into this. Sheila has always had a fear that I would die. Mm. 
And this, of course, confirmed her worst fears, that I am very close to dying at any given moment. Right. I, I feel like you could have a whole separate podcast to talk with her about how that has influenced her. I would note the phrase she used, I'm going to say six months after the heart attack, the most frustrating thing was it changed my lifestyle, it changed my personality, it changed my energy level, it changed so many things about me. That she said, Anthony, I felt like we felt we spent the first 25 years of our marriage learning how to dance, and we had finally figured out how to dance well, and now we're starting over. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That was the tough thing for her. And I think she would tell you we're still figuring out how to form a new dance together. Well, I can understand her. I can understand her concern and fear. I, my father actually died when I was 10 of a heart mm. attack. And so that was sudden and it wasn't unexpected because he had heart disease, but it was sudden and I was 10, mm -hmm. you know. So there's a, I, I can relate to her concern and fear for yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. Anytime you get a phone call now, or at least for a while, if you don't know why that phone call is coming, is Anthony okay? It didn't help that a couple years later, I was in a pretty significant car accident. Fortunately, I was able to call her and say, I'm okay, but I just T-boned somebody going 60 miles an hour. Wow. And so, yes, she. what I gave to her with that heart attack <laughs> was her own journey. She has her own journey sure. about trust that is different from mine. But also similar because well, we're gonna, we'll talk about the whole trust thing also. Right. For my boys, my oldest son, he was down at college in Grand Rapids. He came right home and uh, visited me in the hospital, stayed a day, mm -hmm. um, all that kind of stuff. My middle son never came to visit me. Hmm. I actually talked with him about it just a couple Doesn't weeks like ago. Doesn't like hospitals, huh? You know, I don't think even he's entirely clear, but I'm going to speculate. Just a super sensitive soul. And I don't know, I think emotionally it might have been too much for him to mm -hmm. see me hooked up to stuff, all that, all that stuff. My youngest son, Sheila brought him in, and uh, he wouldn't look at me for a little how bit. How old was he at this oh, time? My. So that was six years ago, so he was 11. Okay. And uh, he would, it took him a couple minutes, and then he would start to look at me out of the side of his eye. And it took maybe five minutes for him to be able to fully look at me. And then he was okay. I don't think that had as much of an impact on them because I, like, they didn't see me pass out in front of them while we were playing right. a board game. An ambulance didn't show up in the yard. A lot of right. that stuff was just yeah. like, mm -hmm. Dad had a heart attack. Then he came home yeah. four days later, and life goes on. I think it was that Thanksgiving where we all went out for Thanksgiving, and I had the conversation you never want to have with your kids, which was, all right, boys, we got to talk about what happens if I die. Because once you've had one heart attack, your odds of having a second one go up. So we did. We spent a Thanksgiving lunch talking about what mom would do, how the boys would have to be present. I drove home with my oldest, and he said, Dad, I've actually been thinking about that since your heart attack. And he said, I've been thinking about what I would do if you and mom would both like die in a car accident. Like, this is my plan. So I hated wow. to burden my boys with right. that, you know. Yeah. But that's, that's life. You right. Know? You right. do it. So what about the church? Oh, our church was great. Um, gave me all the space I needed. I had no pressure to come back on a particular timeline or to show up in a particular way. They gave me a whole lot of space and a whole lot of grace. Um, yeah, I, 
I probably can't speak highly enough about how I was given all the room I needed to to recover. Mm. And then, Susan, having a heart attack gives you so much sermon material. Ah, there you go. <laughs> and I, somebody told me, you only get to play the heart attack card for a year in your sermons. Like, oh, no, I will be milking this. Well, you're doing it now. I'm doing it now. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it is a traumatic event. I mean, that's a big that's yeah. a big thing to happen. You talked a little bit about what you were experiencing emotionally and physically. What about spiritually? What was What was going on? So that was an interesting journey because I think they're all a little bit intertwined. I, I think probably my spiritual journey was more connected in some ways to my the ongoing physical effect because what I had and still continue to have is just a real change of lifestyle in which I just don't have the energy that I used to. Um, I need a lot more time in my life to rest, which means... For a guy who was real big on accomplishing things and in hindsight really wrapping up my accomplishments with my identity, mm-hmm. suddenly going from being a, a guy who was trying to do everything and in some ways, well, trying to do everything is probably the best way to say it, and was always busy and was always productive. Maybe that's the key word, Susan. Mm-hmm. Really found a lot of satisfaction in being productive. And suddenly I just was not productive. And then especially to watch other men around me, it could be in any other vocation, but also other pastors that I get together with, and they're incredibly productive. And I'm like, I'm taking three-hour naps every afternoon, guys. Like, I have a couple-hour window in the morning that is productive for me, and then most of the rest of the day is me figuring out ways to rest. Right. That undermining my 45 I was 47 at the time. My 47 years of building an identity that was oriented around production and doing and accomplishing and impressing in that fashion, that I that drove me to my knees probably more than the physical reality of it. Because honestly, it's been six and a half years. It The physical idea that I would have another heart attack just doesn't haunt me anymore. I've had okay. enough years to for life to go by and it's just not the present thing that it once was but what is present is I am not the man I once was in terms of how I got used to figuring out what made me worthwhile that's a big lesson mm -hmm. so the spiritual side of it more than anything else wasn't so much trusting God with my health that I had had years to deal with that on the other side of my dad's death thinking through that it was much more trusting God with my identity your identity yeah tell me some about some of those challenges what what were you what were you struggling with feeling like I wasn't as masculine as I used to be because I couldn't work as hard as I used to okay and that was not just here at church but most of my life I've done construction work on the side I gotta tell you it's humbling to go go back into that and do a fraction of what I used to do and get exhausted mm-hmm and I should note, Susan, my doctor has made clear my heart is healthy and the meds that I'm on since then ought not to have side effects that are really influencing this. I don't have good explanation for it other than your body keeps score, uh, to quote a famous book title, your right. body keeps score of the things that happen to you. Mm-hmm. And there's this epigenetic, epigenetic reality, which is the, the closest I've found in my own study to understand 
the ongoing lingering impact is that there's an epigenetic reality from trauma and your body knows it and it lingers. And that, that sense of undermining what I associated with being masculine just required a lot of reconfiguring. And I should note, it's been really healthy about what does it mean to be a man in the eyes of God, in the eyes of society, and in the eyes of the church. And who was I taking my cues from mm. about how I saw that identity being played out? And learning that things like actually, because rest is so important, I, I would have thought of spiritual disciplines before as things that I did. Yes. Uh, yes. And, what am uh, I doing for am, God? That's right. And now to realize how hard it is to carve out rest and how important it is to carve out rest. I now tell people rest is a spiritual discipline, napping in particular. I would have seen that as weakness before. And what does it look like to see the ability to rest as strength? Uh, what does it look like instead of seeing accomplishment as equaling worth? What does it look like to to feel contentment with simply being who God intends me to be. How do I build, how do I understand my worth off of that? So would you say up to this point you wrestled, that was the measurement? Oh, yeah. That The yeah, measurement yeah. was how much can I get accomplished in a day? I'm, I'm kind of that person, too, yep. so help me out here. Yeah. <laughs> well, what you need is a good heart attack, Susan. Oh, thanks. <laughs> uh, no, that's why we're doing yeah, this, yeah. so people don't. I think yeah. you and I are kindred spirits in that. I would have said before my heart attack, even though I knew I shouldn't base my identity on that, and I knew I was doing too much, and I, I knew I didn't know how to carve out rest. I knew that what God thought of me mattered more than what people thought of me or that what even I thought of me. And I knew that accomplishments didn't equal, all of those things didn't equal worth. Susan, I knew all of those things. Right. You know all of those things. Mm -hmm. What I discovered was, as long as I had the strength, I defaulted to living as if I didn't believe those things were true. Right, because then you have to admit you have limits. And you have to, <laughs> yeah, right. Because, you know, yeah. I, I actually talk about in the book I wrote that there's, we all have limits and we make mistakes and we sin, and those are the things that affect our identity. Mm -hmm. I can't have limits. Yeah. That I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. So, What's yeah. What's God going to do, Susan, yeah. if we don't do it? Oh, a lot. <laughs> okay. I've learned that so part. <laughs> that's where it turns out you are spot on. And one thing I've noticed is that, much to my surprise, when I got back into the rhythm of doing church ministry, things that changed were things like this. I used to spend maybe 20 hours a week on a sermon. It's probably half my week because, Susan, give me enough time. I know I can craft the perfect sermon mm -hmm. that hits people in mm -hmm. the right spot and that God will use mm -hmm. mightily. And the, the cool quotes and That's references. Right. and yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. They'll be impressed by my scholarship. I could give you this whole list of things that people would be impressed with and it would work. Like, I can do the punch list of good sermoning. And even to say that out loud is just embarrassing, frankly. Mm -hmm. I would have never said that. Like, that, I, I would have never said that as a conscious thought, but I know that it was true. I just thought, I can do this. I will build this sermon. And then I will tackle in prayer at the end so that God will bless it. But God will bless the amazing thing that I have brought to the table. Well, I couldn't sermon prep on the other side of my heart attack. And there's a couple reasons. For, oh, 
heard that. And I should note, right before my heart attack, I had gone to a psychologist to get re-diagnosed with adult ADHD. Okay. Because I wanted to re-up my meds because I had found some meds that were really helpful. And when in the process of doing that, they had diagnosed me with clinical depression. And then like a week later, I had a heart attack. So here I am wow. on the other side of the heart attack. I, my body has experienced the epigenetic trauma of it. I now have uh, depression, which honestly, I, I have been on medication ever since my heart attack for anxiety and depression. Not a high dose, but I really spiraled downhill after my heart attack in those areas. And so I, I believe that part of God's gift to the world is wise doctors mm-hmm. who help us mm-hmm. to treat the fallenness of our physiology. Right. So I say that I'm on meds without embarrassment, but I can't take ADHD meds because they're stimulants and they don't give stimulants to people who've had heart attacks. Okay. And that has really affected my ability to concentrate. And for those of your audience who are listening who struggle with ADD or ADHD, that's its own spiral of frustration. So I have to maximize moments of creativity recognizing when to balance that with long periods of unproductivity because I just can't organize the inside of my head. Mm-hmm. So now, balance that, Susan, with I'm usually good with energy in the mornings and I just drift off the rest of the day. So now I have to find the sweet spot of energy in the morning and my brain cooperating, right? Mm-hmm. So suddenly I went and That's from, an awful lot of coordinating for an ADD person. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's either going to happen or it's not, Yeah. right? Uh, A lot of coffee. Um, So what I discovered was that 20 hours a week went down to 5 to 10. Um, I discovered I needed to recycle previous sermons because there was some weeks I had nothing. But I needed to stand up on Sunday and say something. And what it did, Susan, was push me to just an overwhelming sense of my, my weakness and my inability to perform or work in ways that I associated with effectiveness and just Sunday after Sunday I got up pleading with God that his strength would be obvious in the midst of my weakness that he would increase while I would decrease that he would build this house like in ways I never had in my life Mm -hmm. as a preacher I just hit my knees before Sunday morning like this is going to be a disaster this is going to catch up with me. I don't know if I can keep this job because there's no way this will be effective. This is mediocre preparedness. I'm offering a terrible product. Much to my shock, people started giving me feedback like, Anthony, you're, there's something in your sermons that were never there before. Like, mm. you're speaking mm. to us now. You've turned into a preacher now, instead of a teacher. Let me ask you this because I've just been at the church for not quite a year and I didn't know you when this all happened. The person that I see today is somebody who's authentic, who's, who shares that on the podium. It's one of the things I think a lot of us appreciate about you is that authenticity because it allows us to feel authentic. Is this what was happening at this time or parts of that? I wonder if we could compare it to if someone goes through a recovery program for addiction. They typically say, people really have to come to the end of themselves before they will recover. Oftentimes, outside intervention, and I'm I'm painting with a broad brush, right? I don't want to stereotype every individual's person's situation. But oftentimes, if people will stage an intervention, it won't stick because it didn't come from the heart. Like, you didn't scrape the bottom of the barrel yet. Like, you've got to get to that place 
where you're done and you know it and it's not okay and you your motivation comes out of that place of um, nothing mm-hmm. and in some ways I feel like that's what happened like I really genuinely Susan just felt like I probably can't continue to be a pastor I'm not investing enough in this work they are overpaying me all the things that I felt qualified me to be a pastor in some ways have been taken away from me Wow and I thought well I, I guess I'll do my best to go I can go through the motions and slap a sermon together that's probably too too strong of a term go through the motions I can do it. It felt like you were going through the motion. Yeah, yes. I'm a fraud. It felt like it because mm-hmm. you're used to doing the 30-hour yeah. prep. Yeah. yeah. I can't begin to describe to you how many Sundays I would walk off the stage or the podium after preaching and just think, well, that was a disaster. And I would have three people come up to me and go, that's the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. I'd be like, what is happening? And my wife <laughs> just started laughing at it. I'd go home and tell her, that was terrible. I just can't believe that that was a real sermon. And she'd be like, Anthony, that spoke to me. Like, how? So I felt like it was, and don't get me wrong, Susan, as a preacher, I want to be very clear about this. Uh, if it makes it sound like I think I've arrived as a preacher, that is not what I mean at all. Because I continue to discover this, that the Sundays where I think, I finally crafted the kind of sermon that makes me happy. I am ready. Mm-hmm. That's the one that mm-hmm. will get the least amount of discussion afterwards mm-hmm. in our Message Plus class where we talk about the sermon. Mm-hmm. It'll, people are disengaged, <laughs> yawning. Um, and it'll be the Sunday where I'm like, I don't know how to finish this sermon and everything in it feels disjointed. So here we go. That'll be the one, almost without fail, where the response I'll get from people reminds me that the Holy Spirit was at work. It's in my weakness. It's when I can accept my weaknesses that the power of the Holy Spirit and God working through our broken offerings becomes the most clear. That's right. Preach it, preacher. (laughs) Well, if there's a danger in that, Susan, it's that I think I have to guard laziness in myself. Or I have to guard the tendency to go, since God will just do it, I don't have to be a faithful steward of what he's given me. I do think I need to be a faithful steward, but I think part of being a faithful steward is being an honest steward. Like, what can I do and what can't I do? What are the weeks where I just set down my notes at some point and go, well, this is it. I mean, honestly, I've got nothing else to give. Here we go. Last week was a great example, Susan. It was a great sermon, I, too. <laughs> okay, so just this, saying, will, folks. this will be my case in point. <laughs> I came back from Costa Rica last Monday. I had been there for a week. I had taken my computer with me, and I knew I was going to have a lot of downtime. And I had a lot of planning for studying and prepping. I was going to work ahead in the sermon series we're doing. My computer crashes the whole week I am in Costa Rica. Okay? So I I can do none of this. Hmm. I get home Monday night. I open up my computer to show my wife how it crashed because the keyboard would light up, but the screen wouldn't come on. It worked perfectly, and it's worked perfectly since. Hmm. So I'll just throw that out there. So I'll come back Monday, and the next section in my series I knew was going to be a complex one. Tuesday is busy with all kinds of catch-up. Wednesday is busy with all kinds of catch-up. And I'm, I'm still tired, recovering a bit. I'm like, my anniversary is Thursday, and Sheila and I wanted to carve out time for us throughout Thursday, Friday, Saturday to just enjoy time together. There will not be much sermon prep. And so I thought, it's a thing I don't have to prep. 
it turned into what was Sunday, and I did not put very much prep time into that sermon. Mm-hmm. But it was one of those things where seven years ago, I would have probably run myself into the ground to invest in knocking together a sermon that on my standards would be out of the park and impressive. And this one was more like, you know what? I feel like God's been putting all these things in my life right now that are a unified story in terms of an area of focus. I'm just got to talk about that and see how it goes. And it turns out, mm-hmm. I think it... Yeah, it, it resonated it, it, with it a resonated. lot of people. Yeah. It, it really did. And I, I wonder, though, if I could just ask, you know, you've, you have such a, you have a teaching background. And when you teach, you prepare a lesson. Yeah. And you have certain outcomes and agendas that you hope that the, the students will grasp onto. How does that play into preparing a sermon? Is that part of the, the draw of having to be pre- so prepared? Part of the draw for me of being so prepared is I'm not a good extemporaneous speaker. I deeply admire pastors and other public figures who can like speak without notes or very minimal reliance on that. I can't do that. So part of the preparation is I need to prep a lot. And then as I am prepping and writing out all my notes, like in an essay form, I'm just rereading and rereading throughout the week mm-hmm. so that when I do get up on a Sunday, it's just kind of imprinted in my head. Right. But I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that's going to memorize it. Okay. Um, gotcha. So perhaps, Susan, part of what happens is I am a little more reliant on my notes than I used to be because when I would put all that time into it before, I was rereading and rereading and rephrasing and getting everything just like I wanted. I mean, as we're talking about this... Uh underlying current of accomplishment that's what what i'm kind of getting at is that underlying current of accomplishment that like i i want to make it 100 percent clear to you and to the the listeners and i'm not trying to find a reason why you had a heart attack (laughs) okay all right folks please don't think that i'm just saying it's like as in everything we're learning and we're growing and this is part of your personal growth and you know i love psalm 30 uh, 34 8 which tells us oh taste and see that the lord is good blesses the man who takes refuge in him it's like we're talking about your taste buds changing what were you tasting of god during this time what did you notice about him if at all i'm going to talk about how i experienced god as just patient just experienced god as patient like, God, I think I need to put more work into my job this week, but I am exhausted. And a sense of God's of God saying, it's okay, just rest. Like, God, why am I not getting my strength back? It's okay, Anthony, just rest. You can't force what's not there. Just a lot of a, a sense of affirmation that it was okay, okay to be me. And I don't even know if I like that phrase, Susan, because it can be used as an excuse to to not deal with stuff right. in our life we got to deal with, right? But I I do feel like that's kind of what it was. Like, Anthony, you're my son. I love you. It's it's okay to be weak. It's okay to be tired. It's okay to be it's okay to be not okay. Like mm-hmm. has it changed your value in my eyes? It hasn't changed that you have something to offer to the world in spite of being different than what you were before and yeah, I, Boy, those are good questions, Susan, and I'm struggling to put the words around it. It's it's hard for me in some ways to articulate just a sense of it's okay to be you. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be like that pastor. You don't have to be like that person. You don't mm-hmm. have to have a different personality or any of those things. Yeah, there's nobody else quite like you. 
you know, we hear that all the time. Mom told me that, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that. But when you hear it from the Father, it resonates Mm -hmm. in a way. When when God affirms you, because we talk about affirmation and notice on this podcast a lot. When God affirms you and he sees you and he notices you and you receive it, why, why do we struggle with receiving that God's saying, it's okay, Anthony? But we struggle because we, especially somebody who's accomplishment oriented, I got to push. No, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. And God says, no, wait a minute. I just want you to receive. I want you to receive. Why do you think we struggle with that? But surely, God, you'd be more impressed if I could do more. Yeah, that's right. It's the difference between working for God or with God, you know? That's a, yeah, it's a great distinction. I think, Susan, it caused me to think more about God as a father in terms of how I recognize myself as a father with my boys. And the reality mm. is, it is not what my boys accomplish that gives me deep satisfaction. It is who they are. Mm-hmm. And even that's even different from loving them. So I'm, I want to use satisfaction in a different sense. Because I think love, the agape kind of love the Bible calls us to, is, is the kind of love that we're called to have for everybody and for sure for our family members, that no matter the ups and downs of their life, we're called to love them. So, I mean, I do love my boys deeply in the, uh, in the familial sense of the word and et cetera, but even if their lives were disastrous in some fashion, I think that I would still love them. Mm-hmm. This is a different thing because I never questioned whether God loved me. I questioned whether God was satisfied with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it struck me, no, when I think of what, satisfies me or what brings me satisfaction when I look at my boys is not what they've accomplished it is it's their character it's their the kind of human being they are right that just brings me satisfaction I feel like their careers could fall apart or their sports abilities or their musical abilities none of that would matter like those are cool add-ons at the end of the day what really brings me satisfaction is just watching watching them decent human beings who, who have integrity and love God and love others and all, all the other add-ons wouldn't matter at the end of the day. And I think, okay, I need to consider that when I think about how God the Father views me as his son. The accomplishments are add-ons. Mm-hmm. I think his question is, but Anthony, who are you? Right. And as someone who is a follower of Jesus and being transformed into the image of Jesus. Like the, the things that matter have to do with my pursuit of holiness with the help of the Holy Spirit, living a life of integrity, caring for others, like the things that have to do with being mm-hmm. are where it's at. And so I've, I've been spending six years, Susan, in ways I didn't before, trying to reor- taste, taste this part of the goodness but of you have God. to stop and rest to taste, yeah. don't you? Yeah, you do. You can't taste <laughs> yeah. them or run. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think there's, I mean, something that God's been pressing on my heart too is this whole concept of positioning myself to receive from Him and accepting that because when you have these limits, you make mistakes and you sin, you get this overall feeling of unworthiness, mm-hmm. and then you're like, I don't measure up. I'm not what mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be. That's not a position to receive from God because, you know, God, God is so merciful and he's like, no, I know you have limits. I know you make mistakes like you added something else up wrong or something. And I know that you sin. 
I mean, if you could just give maybe a verse or something that you could just encourage the listeners. And how, how do we do that? How do we receive, position ourselves to receive? Whew. That's another podcast, we, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> how do we position ourselves to receive that? Let me see if I can answer this a couple different ways. I'll try to keep it short. I think sometimes it's a Paul on the road to Damascus experience where God Hit you knocks on the head. us off our high horse okay. and goes, I'm here, pay attention. I think sometimes it's a prodigal son thing where in that parable it just says he came to himself and saw what was going on, like had clarity about his life that for whatever reason had eluded him. Mm-hmm. And I would see that as a God-given clarity, like God in his mercy gives to the prodigal son. Do you see where you are? Mm-hmm. Go home. Mm-hmm. I think probably a lot of that is something that's initiated on God's end is that he finds ways to step into our lives and get our attention. Or... He uses things that happen in life to get our attention. Because I want to be careful. If, if I would find out that God gave me a heart attack to get my attention and make me more into the image of Christ, I would be okay with that. But I don't know that it's necessary that he did that. It could just be, I had a heart attack. And now God's mm-hmm. going to bring mm-hmm. something good out of something that Satan meant for my ill. God's mm-hmm. going to go, all right. I could do something with this. I'm so relieved you said that because I've been struggling with this life as a lesson. It's like, really, God, do I have to have another lesson? Right, right, right. You know, didn't I figure this out yet? And sometimes it's just because things happen. Sometimes it's mistakes I've made or yep. sins I've mm-hmm. committed or, or limits I have. You have to kind of come to terms with those things that sometimes it's not... It's what God's going to produce out of what happens, not yeah, necessarily yeah. what happens. Right. That's the promise, right, is that God will work in the midst of our life to bring about good things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I know there's whole theological discussions to have about what God causes to happen and what God allows to happen. And I don't know the answer to all of those, but I do know that in the midst of what happens, God remains faithful. So... If I'm looking to summarize positioning ourselves, I think maybe humility and honesty are maybe the two biggest things. Oh, it's a oh, Susan, that's uh, such a good question because you know it's such a good question uh, that I think that's another podcast. It, it might have to be <laughs> just because I feel like it was more God positioning me. Mm. than me positioning myself. That God in his graciousness and his mercy brings about or uses things in life to get our attention. And this heart attack got my attention in a way nothing else did. And honestly, for that, I am immensely grateful. I'm only half kidding when I say to people sometimes, what you need is a good heart attack. I don't mean I want them to go through the trauma of it. What I mean is it reoriented some things in my life that I'm not sure would have gotten reoriented had not something like that happened. Unexpected. I'm not really sure what we expect in the unexpected, but this conversation with Anthony reminded me just how this life with God is actually unexpected. But it's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It's good. And there's nothing to be feared. 
I can't help but notice one of those popular verses in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. It seems, though, that this is a matter of trust and maybe our perception of God. The issue isn't whether God is trustworthy. The issue lies within us. Are we able to trust God? And this is the cool thing. Even if we don't, he works things together for good anyway. Thanks for that reminder, Anthony. I want to give you an update on Maple Ridge Place. It's been quite an exciting fall. In October, we had our open house, and this November, we had our first workshop for creatives. The day was filled with discoveries about ourselves, others, and God, and how much we reflect the Creator when we create. The other exciting thing is that Freedom Farm Ministries moved their horses to the farm. Welcome to Hannah and Josephine, our new residents. We look forward to all God will do through these beautiful creatures. Check us out by Googling Maple Ridge Place, Traverse City. Until next time, take notice. Oh